So the Bible is kind of this curious collection of writing, 66 different books, uh, dozens of authors over thousands of years, and it is filled with things that we didn't see coming. And I love sitting down with a a new group of people and beginning to kind of unpack the Bible and, and the truths that are there and just seeing people who have never heard some of these truths or maybe have, have heard it in a way that has led them to believe something different or less about who God is or who they are or what life's all about and to see the lights go on. I'm like, that's in the Bible? Uh, that's, that's what's going on here? And uh, it's just a cool experience. And at its core, the Bible is the story of God's interaction with humanity. And when you read it, you see that this story is filled with with mystery and intrigue, there's love and hate and loss and redemption and transformation, and it's our story as well. Every one of us is a character in the continued story of God's interaction with his creation, and that's why when we read it, we connect so much with the emotions and the feelings of the characters in the Bible. When we read their stories, we think, oh yeah, I, I, I understand your loss, your confusion, your questions, your doubt. I understand your desperation, your need, your hunger and thirst for significance and meaning because I have those things too. And when we watch movies, when we watch TV shows, when we read a good book, one of the qualities of something that's well done there is is well-developed characters, right? If if, if a character is well-developed over the time of watching that movie or reading that book, watching that show, we begin to, to really either like or hate a character based on, you know, whether they're a villain or a hero. So I just want to hear from you. What are, what are some of your favorite characters? Villains or heroes, it doesn't matter. Books, movies, TV shows. Who are some of the characters you've kind of learned to love or learned to hate because you've been so engrossed in the story? Who? What? Okay, yeah. Who else? The Flash? Okay, good. Tim and Dwight from The Office. Yes, yes. Now we're getting salty and grainy here. Yes. No, it's not bad. Joey from Friends, sure. Who else? Atticus Finch from, yes, from literature. Yes, ooh, look at you. Anybody else? I'm like a sucker for Jason Bourne. I've got this serious man crush on Matt Damon. It's like, I want to drive the cars. I want to, you know, fight for good, I guess. I don't know. It's kind of hard to tell sometimes where he is. But man, yeah, you, you fall in love with these characters, right, when they're developed well and you see into their heart and, and all the complexity of who they are. I mean, Joey's a very complex character, right? Yes. <laughs> So here's the deal. We are all characters in God's story. And he created each one of us, and he placed us in a particular time, and he gave us, each one of us, particular gifts and talents and abilities and has plans for our life. And our task as characters in this grand story is to figure out what the plot is, who we are, and the role that we're supposed to play. Our task is to figure out what the plot is, who we are, and the role that we're supposed to play. And that's probably kind of 
the most important assignment that we have here in life. We don't want to miss those things, okay? And here's what we know about us, or at least what the Bible says is true about us, whether we believe it or not. We just read some things from Psalm 139 just a minute ago, but that psalm in particular talks a lot about us. And in that psalm, David says that we were um, knit together in our mother's womb. And it says that we were fearfully and wonderfully made. Each one of us, God spent time on us. I've never knitted, but it's not a quick process. People knit things for a long time. That's the imagery there God's using. He spent some time on each one of us. And we talked about a few weeks ago that we were all created in the image of God, that we were crowned with glory and honor. And so all of that knowledge tells me that we must matter. We must matter. We can't be insignificant if those things are true. In his book, Storyline, well, some of you guys have been through that study here, Donald Miller said this, the most dangerous person in the world is a person who does not understand how powerful God made them to be. Here's another way to look at it. The fact that Satan spends so much time trying to destroy our lives tells us that he must consider us a threat. Otherwise, why would he waste his time, right? I tweeted out this quote from John Eldridge earlier this week. The story of your life is the story of the long and brutal assault on your heart by the one who knows what you could be and fears it. Did you know that Satan fears you and your potential? We are all characters in a great story, and our life is kind of a subplot in this grand narrative that's going on. We all have a significant role to play. The enemy, on the other hand, would have us believe the lie that we're not important, that we're insignificant, and that our lives don't matter, that our lives are just this thing that happened mysteriously, and then it's just this endless pursuit of pleasure and happiness for three or four decades until you die, so you might as well live it up, right? And most of the people in this world live in a fog. And Satan, the father of lies, he is the master at at kind of clouding our hearts and minds and just to keep us kind of in survival mode, just getting by. And you know what that feels like, right? You get up, you go to school, you go to work, Right? You come home, you make the meals, you do the chores, you do your homework, you watch the TV show. You go to bed knowing that a lot of the relationships in your life and some that are even in your home and some that are even in your bedroom are broken and less than what you hoped or thought that they would be. And then you wake up the next day and you do it all over again. And in the midst of the daily grind of just getting by, we miss God's grander story and the role that he wants us to play in the midst of that. We forget, as we've been talking about for a few weeks now, that that we are in, we are caught up in this cosmic battle 
that's going on in the world around us between the forces of good and evil for the hearts and minds of all of us and that these are desperate times. We are at war, you are needed, and you are significant. So if we have an important role to play, then what's our plot? What's the story? What's our character supposed to be doing in the story? Well, Jesus gave us the plot in Luke chapter 4. I want you to open your Bibles to that. Page 935, Luke chapter 4. Jesus is at the very beginning of his ministry, and he's done some, some pretty cool stuff, healing and teaching, and he goes back to his hometown, back to the synagogue that he grew up in, and goes to church and stands up and reads from a scroll of the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, and this is what he says in verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery, excuse me, of sight for the blind. To set the oppressed free. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So the story is this. Sharing the good news that despite Satan's best attempts to kill, steal, and destroy all of our lives, everyone in this world, the good news is that we can experience freedom from our sins, that we don't have to live in bondage anymore, that our, our sight, our spiritual sight can be recovered in those places where we've been blinded by our own selfishness, our own pride. God can heal those things. We can see things clearly for what they really are. That, that the vulnerable and, and the lost and the, and the broken and the oppressed in the world, that there's justice for them. And that we are messengers of that good news so that what? We are messengers of that good news so that what? Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.22. He says, I have become all things to all people So that by all possible means, I might save some. So the plot of the story is forgiveness, freedom, redemption in Christ Jesus. And the purpose or our role as characters in that story is to save many lives. That's what we're supposed to be doing. That's the reason why we were put on this earth. First of all, to experience God's saving love ourselves. Right, And then to work with him in saving many lives. Our brothers and sisters, the people that we know in this world who are drowning in sin, in ignorance because they just don't know better, in poverty, in excess, in guilt, in shame, in systems of injustice. St. Irenaeus in the second century said this, the glory of God is, is man fully alive. When we understand the plot of the story and that we are an important character with a significant role to play, saving many lives, then and only then will we be fully alive.
It's only when we know the story and the role we're supposed to play and then we're actually engaged in that, then we will be fully alive. We are not insignificant. Far from it. Each one of you is desperately needed. Because Jesus, in talking about this lost and broken world, he said, wide is the path. Broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many are on it. And in the midst of that reality, he sends us as his ambassadors in that to help him save many lives. The story of the Bible is the story of God continually choosing seemingly insignificant people to accomplish great things, to save many lives. If you go back and you look at the Old Testament, God sends the prophet Samuel to anoint a new king for Israel. And he sends him to Bethlehem. And he says specifically, I want you to go to the family of Jesse. And so Samuel goes there and Jesse says, hey, I need to see your sons. So Jesse goes and gets his sons and one by one they parade in front of Samuel. And they're all strapping soldiers, you know, handsome, strong, mature. And Samuel keeps thinking, oh, surely it's this one. I mean, surely, I mean, look at this guy. I mean, what a great king he would make. And God keeps saying, no. And he says to Samuel, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So finally, Samuel says to Jesse, do you have any more sons? What else you got? You know, you got a Yugo out there in the back somewhere? And he says, yeah, I've got one more, the youngest son. He's out tending the sheep right now. And so they go and get David. You see, God didn't want the soldier sons. He wanted the sheep herder. He wanted the one with the heart that he thought, you know what, I could work with this guy. And as a king and military leader, years later, David went on to save many lives. Peter and John were insignificant fishermen in insignificant little villages when Jesus came up to them and said, hey, I want you to follow me. And as we read their story, as their story develops and they become one of Jesus' couple of Jesus' disciples, we see time and time again, those two in particular, they don't get it. They misunderstand so much of what Jesus is saying and we see them constantly making these really stupid selfish request of, I want the glory. Can you make me sit at your right-hand side? And just all of these things, you're just like, what? Why did he pick them? But then Jesus dies, and, and those two are filled with the Holy Spirit, and they are changed. And they finally understood the story and the role that they were supposed to be playing all along. And fearlessly, those two, Peter and John, they go into Jerusalem in a very hostile climate because everybody's trying to find where Jesus' resurrected body is. They're trying to stamp out this Christian movement. And they fearlessly and boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, so much so that they're arrested. And in Acts chapter 4, they're brought before this Jewish legal council. And standing before them, they preach the gospel again, knowing that doing so could mean that they could be killed. And this is what the Jewish leader said. 
in Acts 4.13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. They were insignificant in the world's eyes. But by being with Jesus, he made them significant and equipped them for the task of saving many lives. John chapter 4. If you're familiar with that story, Jesus comes into this town in Samaria and he sits down by well at noon when nobody goes out to get water because it's hot. And this woman comes to draw water. And so we know something's up. And Jesus engages her in conversation. We learn pretty quickly that this is a woman who's been married and divorced several times and now is living with a man that's not her husband. And through this course of conversation, Jesus says, you know, hey, you're going to come back to this water every day and then you're going to go home and you're going to get thirsty again and you have to keep coming back to this well. And he says, I'm going to offer you myself, living water. And if you drink of me, you'll never be thirsty again. And in that moment, her life is transformed. And she goes back to her village and she tells everyone, I've been healed. You're not going to believe this guy. You've got to come and hear this thing. And she does. She goes back in John 4.39. It says, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. This seemingly insignificant outcast of a woman was used by God to save many lives. A poor shepherd, the youngest son, two unskilled, ordinary, unschooled, I'm sorry, ordinary fishermen, a woman who'd lived a checkered past, Paul, who we've read and are reading all the time, a former murderer of Christians, redeemed and used by God. And encountering Jesus drew out the glory hidden and forgotten in their hearts. He helped them to become their true selves. Do we have any idea who we are? Do you have any idea who you are? In his writings, Paul says again and again that as Christians, we are in Christ Jesus. That means that through his grace and his forgiveness, we, when we receive that and surrender our lives to that, we have become one with him. We are one with Christ Jesus. And as we talked about when we studied the book of Romans a few years ago, what that means is that everything that's true about Jesus is true about us. So what's true about Jesus? We're going to put some things up on the screen. Dazzle me, people. What's true about him? He's patient. He loved everybody regardless of whether they listened to him and followed him. He healed the sick no matter what. Okay, so he had unconditional love for people. What else? How are we doing up there, Todd? <laughs> Got it? Good. 
Good. What else? What else do we know about Jesus? What's true about him? He's what? He's forgiving. What else? He's perfect. Sinless. That's all we know. That's all we've learned. Yes, sir. He's patient? Yes. Misunderstood? Okay. Yeah, Brady? He puts the will of God before his own? Okay. Yeah. He what? Same yesterday and today and tomorrow. Yeah, he never changes. Yeah. He was a teacher? Sure. What else? Yeah, Renee. Okay, yeah, he hung out with sinners. Yeah. He was bold and courageous. Good. We could go on, right? Now, I want you to look at that list. That's you. That's who you are. We just sang a song about that, didn't we? (laughs) Right? Whether you believe it or not is not the question. The truth is, is that you are one with Christ. His spirit is in you. So everything that's true about him in the Holy Spirit is in you. That's who you are. It's just a matter of whether you let it come out or not. Or whether you get in the way of that. It's just kind of like a husband and wife. What God says is true about a husband and wife when they take their vows is that the two become one flesh. Now, we can act like we're two flesh in marriage, and people do it all the time. But the reality is is that you're one in God's eyes, and then the goal is to try to live from that reality. Okay? There's significant implications if we believe that and live in that way. That's our character description. If you're you know, looking at a new script and it's telling about this new character, Bob, what do we know about Bob? Well, Bob is these things because Bob's one with Jesus and this is what I know about Jesus, so that's what I know about him. Paul said it like this in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Every one of us is being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. Daily, we are being made brighter and brighter and more glorious and more glorious. That's, he's committed to that work in us, making us into the image of his Son. And so our role, our responsibility as a church community is to call out that glory in one another. To call out that good, our true selves. To say to our friend Justin or to our friend Matt, hey, when I saw you do that, I saw the patience and the love of Christ in you. That's who you are. Man, I saw how much you served your your wife or your friend who was in need. I saw how you were in the midst of their pain with them. Man, when you were doing that, that was your true self. My wife is awesome with kids. 
And when I see her engaging with little kids and loving them, man, that's her true self. That's when she is most like Christ. And that's when she's most beautiful, is when she's doing the very thing that God created her to do. We have a responsibility to not allow one another to settle for this mundane, distracted, insignificant life or story. We also have a responsibility as a church to not allow our church to go through the motions of doing church, of putting on a weekly service and doing children's ministry and singing some songs and going to small group and blah, blah, blah. But what's it all for? Why are we doing all of this? I just need to be honest with you. Sometimes I get sick of writing sermons. (laughs) Really. Because I'm just so tired of talking about it. I just want to live it. I want all of you to live it. We've got enough information. If it's not about saving many lives or engaging in the battle or healing our wounds so that we can help heal the wounds of others, loving and giving sacrificially, then we are missing the point. We're missing the point about what our life's supposed to be about and definitely missing the point about what church is supposed to be in this world. And we're playing right into the enemy's trap of making a lot of things that don't matter important. So why do we believe the lie that we are insignificant, that our lives don't matter, and that we don't have an important role to play? Why don't we live from our glory? Why do you believe that lie? Because every one of you does all the time. So tell me why. It's easier. Super. Great answer. True answer. Yeah, Eric? Lack of faith. In what way? What do you mean? Like you're afraid of what? Okay. Yeah, when, when you might feel like God's not visible to you on a daily basis, you have doubt. Lack of confidence in your ability to pull it off, right? Yeah. Yes, Aaron. Yeah. Yeah. So she's not, she said, if I'm not going to the word to kind of allow God to define for me who I am, what my identity is, and I'm kind of hustling through life, trying to find something that's going to tell me what I am, who I am, what I'm supposed to be doing, how, how worthy I am, I'm allowing the world to dictate to me what that story is going to be. Yeah. That's awesome. Yes. Fear of actually being successful. What do you mean by that? Okay? So the fear of responsibility of actually getting it right sometimes. And then also maybe like the fear of, well, man, if I'm really doing something, the enemy's really going to attack me. So I'll just kind of lay low and really kind of do nothing really that significant and maybe Satan will leave me alone, right? We, we, we live these insignificant lives. We believe the lies. 
We don't live from our glory because, for one, I think a lot of times we're ignorant of who we are, we're afraid of the unknown, and we're afraid to fail. I mean, those are three that I came up with. In John 14, when Jesus was preparing his disciples for his impending death and his physical departure from this world, you can imagine the anxiety and the fear that must have been welling up in them. They'd they'd had Jesus right there with them, right? And so when things got rough, they could always be like, hey, bail us out. Like, do your thing, right? And now he's like, hey, I'm leaving. And they're all like, what's the plan then? I mean, it can't be that we're going to carry this on because, right, we're unschooled, insignificant people. So here's what he said to reassure them. He said a couple things in John 14. First, he said, do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Not only does he kind of try to pump them up, but he says, hey, guess what? Listen, you're actually going to do greater things than me. As the video said, we didn't see that coming, right? We didn't expect that. When God was preparing the nation of Israel to conquer the promised land, he knew they'd be scared. I want you to turn to Deuteronomy 20. Deuteronomy 20, it's page 177 in your Bibles. This is what he's, he's telling the priests, hey, when the folks get scared, when you're ready to get and go into battle, this is what I want you to say. Starting in verse 1 of Deuteronomy 20. When you go to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours, do not be afraid of them. Because the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt will be with you. When you are about to go into battle... The priest shall come forward and address the army, and he shall say, Hear, Israel, today you are going into battle against your enemies. Do not be faint-hearted or afraid. Do not panic or be terrified by them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. And you see, that's the problem that Tony was talking about is when we, when we think it's about our ability to pull it off. And God says, guys, it's not going to be about you. It's going to be about me. I'm going to be there. I'm going to fight for you. When we get into the battles of life, God is saying, hey, I'm, I'm here too. I'm with you. I'm on your team, right? I've, I've got this. Trust in me. On the bulletins, that you guys get every week when you come in the door. There's a verse there. Proverbs 4.23. It says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring, great name for a church, of life. That's a pretty bold statement. Above all else. Guarding your heart should be your top priority, this is saying, from the enemy's lies, 
So, how are we doing that? How are we doing at that for ourselves and for others? If you had to fill in the blank of this sentence, I am guarding my heart by, what would you say? What are you doing? What are the actions? What are the rhythms? What are the patterns in your life that would communicate, I am guarding my heart from the lies of the enemy because I'm doing these things? When you think about other people in your life, maybe a spouse, your kids, a good friend, maybe an even enemy, (laughs) if you had to fill in the blank with this sentence, I am guarding the hearts of others by what? What are you doing to help guard the heart of your friend who's being attacked by the enemy and by lies that they're believing? Are you engaged in the battle for your own heart, for your wife's heart, for your friend's hearts? It seems ridiculous to think about a a military who would be getting ready to go to war that aren't doing anything to prepare for it. Right? If I went to the military and, and, you know, after 9-11 and I said, hey, what are you guys doing to get ready to go over there? And they're like, ah, you know, just hanging out, having some meetings, having some potluck dinners. I'd be concerned, Correct? We should all be concerned if that was the case. But that's what we find in the church a lot. Many in this world have been lulled to sleep. And tomorrow morning when each one of us wakes up, the enemy is going to be right there. And he's going to have this kind of like, I just this is just an analogy, so it's not really like this, okay? Devil's not going to be in your room physically tomorrow morning. But it's like the enemy's going to have like a CD that's got just kind of our mundane, usual, distracted life, and he's going to be putting it in and queuing it up and getting ready to hit play, and he's going to be kind of looking at you and being like, you going to let me hit this button again today? And we can either robotically keep going through the motions or we can do something different. We can believe something different. When the lies come, what will be different this time? Ephesians 5, 14 through 16 says this, Wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Guys, when we're caught up in this cycle of just distractedness, just surviving, just getting by, the days are evil because days turn to weeks and weeks turn to months and months turn to years and you find out that you haven't been living the story that you were created to live and you haven't been saving many lives. (laughs) And it's not that God doesn't still love you, it's just that you're missing out. (laughs) 
Because the glory of God is man's heart's fully alive. And the only way you can be fully alive is if you're living the life you were intended to live. Not the counterfeit life that the world wants to offer you. The plot of the grand narrative is that we were born into what we were born into is redemption and reconciliation. That's what God is doing in this world. He is redeeming and reconciling man unto himself. That's what he's up to. And the backdrop to this is war. We are engaged in a battle for the hearts and minds of all humanity. And in the midst of that drama, God has created you and crowned you with glory and honor. And he has called you to join him in the mission of saving many lives. Your life is significant. People are counting on you. You are needed. And as we head into communion, I want you to ask the question this morning, in participating in this ritual, in reminding ourselves of what Christ has done for us, dying and bleeding, shedding his blood so that we could be forgiven, what was it all for? Why? Why are we doing this? What's supposed to be the outcome of participating in this? One, obviously it's to remind us of who we are and what he's done. But the second and really important piece of this is that we're supposed to take this truth to the world to help save many lives. So that other people know Christ died for them. Christ poured out his blood and broke his body so that they could be forgiven, so that they could have hope. Because broad is the road, wide is the path that leads to destruction, and many are on it. And guys, we've got to wake up. We've got to wake up and stop believing the lies, stop being distracted, remind one another what the truth is, get in the game. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reminder this morning. We thank you that you are committed to transforming us into the image of God in ever-increasing glory. Lord, we thank you for the reminder that there's this grand narrative going on. God, that you are redeeming and reconciling this broken world to yourself. And your desire is that everyone would know you. That everyone would know the glory that's in them, that everyone would know the role that they're supposed to play, and that everyone would join you in saving many lives. This is not a game. The enemy is real. The consequences of either choosing to follow you or not are real. We, we are in your army. We have marching orders. We need to be in the game with you, Lord. So help us, help us to believe what's true. Help us to guard our hearts in a way that, that protects us from believing the lies. Help us to do that for each other. Lord, as we just sit in silence here for a while before communion, I pray that you would speak to us, that we would open our hearts to you, pour out the things that we need to say today.